I think it inspired a lot of people in the coffee industry because it spoke to the things that we love about coffee. I, I'm not the only one that is in love with the community part of coffee and the uh, sensory part of coffee. We were able to build a, a, a kind of a business model that touched on both those things, except the community was global instead of in your hometown. Suddenly the coffee producer was part of the community and that was a special thing about what came to be known as direct trade later. Welcome back to the Fifth Wave Podcast. I'm Jeffrey Young, Editor-in-Chief of Fifth Wave. In today's episode, we're chatting with coffee guru, Peter Giuliano, an incredibly influential figure in the coffee industry and a true global visionary. Peter has had a long and formidable career in coffee, spanning more than 30 years, from humble beginnings as a barista in California to co-owner of North Carolina-based roaster, Counterculture, where he helped build their transformative direct sourcing and transparency model. Peter now serves as executive director at the Coffee Science Foundation and is chief research officer at the Specialty Coffee Association, a dual role that sees him lead the organization's research and scientific investigation divisions. In this conversation, Peter discusses the importance of building a global coffee community and how this industry can use science and knowledge sharing, plus a little bit of optimism, to adapt to change and prepare for the unexpected. Welcome, Peter. Thank you. It's such a great pleasure to be here. You've had a pretty formidable career in the coffee industry. How did it all begin? I, I like telling this story because it was so random. I fell in love with coffee houses when I was in high school and college. I grew up in Southern California near San Diego, kind of a beach town. And there was this coffee shop there that I used to go to with my friends. And one day somebody didn't show up for work. I was in college and I was about to go to class and the manager looked at me and said, hey, Peter, uh, somebody didn't show up. Would you like to work a shift? And I said, okay. And I skipped class and they threw me an apron and I put it on. And I've worked in coffee ever since that day when I was 18 years old. Uh, <laughs> and I started as a barista and then I fell in love with it, the coffee shop, which I loved anyway, but then I found that I also loved working there. So I became a shop manager and then I wound up through a funny series of events, running a chain of coffee shops in San Diego in the nineties. Um, and that's when it kind of shifted from being a job to a career for me. Uh, and, uh, then I shifted to a coffee wholesaling company that we had started in San Diego and I did that part. And so my kind of formative years were in the late eighties and 1990s during that really early phase of especially coffee when I was uh, in my twenties. What was it about that first shift? They threw, threw an apron and the light must've come on. Uh, so yeah, what was I, it about that absolute moment that made you so enthused? I loved the environment of the coffee house, you know, how it was a place where as a young person, I could come and read books and meet with my friends, but there was also, you know, a, a wide variety of people there. Um, and, and, and so I loved that part. 
The other turning point, I remember a few months after I started and a coworker brought me a cup of coffee. She had it to me. She said, taste this. And I remember exactly how it tasted. I remember where I was standing. I remember everything about that moment. <laughs> and it was like the sensory moment where I tasted that coffee, tasted the cherries, chocolate covered cherries is what that coffee tasted like. Turned out it was a uh, coffee from Java, from the Cayumas estate in Java. And uh, I still remember all these details. But that sensory impact, like I said, well, wait a second, there's something different about this. And that was so memorable. It made me want to chase kind of that experience. So it was two things. It was the environment of the coffee shop, but then also the culinary sort of sensory experience of, of specialty coffee that captivated me and it propelled me. Um, it still propels me now, actually. The community part of coffee and the sensory culinary part of coffee are the things that I fell in love with then and I'm still in, lo in love with now. Then you went on to kind of a lengthy career with counterculture. Yes, that's right. After 13 years of working in specialty coffee in San Diego, I made a change and I was looking around and there was this company in North Carolina called Counterculture that needed some coffee leadership. And, and so I went there and I met them and in a, pretty soon I became a co-owner of the business and I ran the coffee part of Counterculture from around 2000. Um, people call that the third wave kind of era. And so that was my sort of second career in coffee from running retail businesses to being really focused on wholesale and coffee supply chains. And then, and also building that identity as what a, a different kind of coffee company could be, which is how we saw ourselves. It certainly became one of the most influential coffee roasters of its time. What was it that you learned during that period, that transition from coffee shops to wholesale? Yeah. The historical context was so important. 2000 was a, like a year that changed a lot in coffee. There was a change in the coffee market where prices went down in the commodity coffee market. And it created a lot of, you know, urgency, like, wait a second, something's wrong here, you know? And so it made coffee people like me realize that we really needed to understand our own supply chains if we wanted to rectify that. We couldn't just rely on the ups and downs of the, the market because that creates risk as a business, the ups part. And then the downs part, you know, when coffee got cheap was no good thing either because you wound up with coffee suppliers that were frustrated or not able to cover their costs. So we wanted to really invest in our supply chains from a very practical perspective, like get really clear on who was supplying coffee to us, have personal relationships with them and get some stability in our system from that. Also though, happened at the same time that in food more generally, a lot of people started paying attention to where their food was coming from. It was the um, beginning of the local food movement. Farm to table is what people would say, where people were wanting to get an understanding of their food supply chains too. So what we were doing at Counterculture really fit in with that. And I think that's one reason why um, a lot of people started paying attention because it was very congruent with what was happening in 
food and in agriculture more broadly at the moment. It's just that we were doing it for coffee. One thing about growing up in San Diego as I did is San Diego is in many ways kind of a bilingual town, um, being on the border with Mexico as it is. So I had enough comfort in the Spanish language and with Latin America in general that I was real comfortable traveling in Latin America and interacting directly with coffee producers. Also, there were others at the same time. Dave Griswold was one. Jeff Watts from Intelligentsia was also very active at the same time doing this kind of work. And besides giving us good coffee and the kind of stability that we wanted in our supply chain, it also gave us a wealth of stories to tell our customers about where their coffee was coming from. And they were eager for that. People are eager to know where their food comes from often. And to be able to teach our customers and and their customers about what the country of Nicaragua was about and why these farms that were producing these delicious coffees were special, that gives richness along with the coffee itself. And it turned out to be a real successful model for us. I think it inspired a lot of people in the coffee industry because it spoke to the things that we love about coffee. I, I'm not the only one that is in love with the community part of coffee and the uh, sensory part of coffee. We were able to build a, a, a kind of a business model that touched on both those things, except the community was global instead of in your hometown. Suddenly the coffee producer was part of the community. And that was a special thing about what came to be known as direct trade later. Wow. And your first visit to a farm, what was that like? My first trips were to Mexico and to Nicaragua. I I remember being on a truck in Nicaragua and knowing that I was going up to see coffee. Remember, I'd worked in coffee already for a decade or more at this point. And I was already fascinated with the places that it came from. But I, I didn't know a lot about coffee. For example, I didn't know if the coffee fruit was gonna taste like coffee, the beverage, you know? I didn't know what the leaves were going to taste like. I didn't know what the flowers were going to smell like. So I was so excited on this dirt road. And when I started to see things I recognized as coffee trees, that was a real moment for me. And then when I stood in a farm, um, it sort of completed what the experience of drinking coffee in the coffee house was. You know, I, I realized that that was the end point and this was the beginning point. And it triggered a love that I've always had for agriculture. And it, it really transformed my career at that moment. Then you became involved in the SCA. Tell us yeah. about that. How did that come about? In the 90s, when I was running these coffee shops, I became really interested in teaching the staff about coffee. I realized that that was an important part of what we did in coffee shops was not only make delicious drinks, but also put them in a context of what is coffee? What is espresso? Why do we call coffee by its country name, et cetera, et cetera. So that knowledge part, I became really interested in. And at the company, I was the teacher of all of the 180 employees that we had. Part of my responsibility besides running the business was also being the coffee kind of guru. And um, that can be sort of lonely sometimes when you're the person that everybody looks to for knowledge. I, I wanted other people that were as geeky about coffee as I was. So one day I saw a a thing in a magazine for an SC, a class that the Specialty Coffee Association of America was hosting. So I drove up. It was in Long Beach, California, about an hour away. I drove up and there I was in a classroom 
with 20 people who were as geeky about coffee as I was. And we were teaching each other about coffee. And that's when I realized that being a coffee knowledge person could be a career. And that became my goal. So the SCA provided me with a network of coffee people that expanded beyond my own company. Shortly after that, I got involved with some other people who were, I would call us coffee fundamentalists. Like we were really, 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 really into the coffee itself. And we were all coffee roasters. And so we created this network called the Coffee Roasters Guild. And at the first meeting of the Coffee Roasters Guild, I met a bunch of people who were just like me. And they provided me a professional community that was so valuable to me. And I was so grateful for that. It was the SCAA that, that tra- helped me transition from it being a coffee job to a coffee career or a coffee life. So then when I left counterculture, it was a natural transition for me to go to work for the Specialty Coffee Association. It gave me a career and I'm inspired to help other people uh, achieve that same thing. You then moved into coffee research with the SEA. Tell us about that and why research is so vital to our industry. A big part of what specialty coffee is has to do with knowledge. And the distinction between specialty coffee and commodity coffee, let's say, is the commodity coffee is just coffee and that's its whole point, right? There's no story. There's no technique. It's there for you. Hopefully it tastes good. It's caffeinated. And that's its purpose. Especially coffee layers experience on top of the basic coffee experience. And all of that experience comes from knowledge. A huge amount of it has to do with the sensory experience. And that flavor can come through agriculture. It can come through preparation like roasting or brewing. And all of those things, agriculture, roasting, brewing, are processes that can be understood through science and technique. And so I think coffee people, because we're in the middle of this alchemy, whether we're roasters changing green coffee to brown coffee or a barista changing brown coffee to a beverage, we know that we're in charge of some sort of alchemical thing that's really important to the final experience. And we naturally want to know more about that. So that's why knowledge and education are really important to coffee people. We pursue knowledge like many industries don't. But sadly, because of the way that the coffee industry has always been structured with coffee production happening in the global South, coffee consumption traditionally happening in the global North, a lot of that stuff has been a mystery, particularly the agriculture stuff. So that's why especially Coffee Association, other organizations have become very education focused and that knowledge can't exist without research. So it's about seven years ago or so in the Specialty Coffee Association that we really needed to take the research part more seriously. What I've been doing is building a system where we can use resources from the industry to do more coffee knowledge building, coffee science, And that includes consumer research, sensory science, agricultural research, and economic research. And what projects are you currently working on? What are you most excited about? We have a variety of projects. Well, we're in the middle of a a cold brew study. 
we all know that cold brew is different than uh, coffee brewed with hot water, but we don't know a lot about why. And so this project, three years research project that includes chemistry and sensory analysis and brewing physics to help us understand where these differences come from, why uh, cold brew is different than hot brew, why that's important, and then how that we can use it in the industry. Then the second part of my job happens, which is taking that information and figuring out ways to get it out into the specialty coffee community. So for that, we do articles and lectures and classes and curriculums in our education programs and stuff like that. What are the challenges this industry is facing? What, what do you see are our sort of existential challenges or, or even minor challenges that must be addressed soon? We're a trade organization. And that's one thing that I think is really important to keep in mind. Businesses, business networks, business systems are incredibly powerful and they don't happen by accident. They happen by a lot of people who take a lot of risks and put a lot of effort into building their businesses and contributing to their own economic well-being. And then in turn, it leads to a larger economic well-being. And we need to continue to cultivate those networks through the shocks that are happening in the world. So we just went through the pandemic shock, right? Yeah. And then that led to a series of supply chain shocks, transportation issues, and shifts in consumer behavior. And so these kinds of shocks are the things that we need to be really well prepared for as an industry. When people ask me, what are the challenges? It's being ready for the kind of shocks that will continue to happen in the coming decades, which are likely to get a little bit more intense and be unexpected. You know, climate change is on everybody's mind. We're aware that coffee is susceptible to temperature and that temperatures are changing and that's going to have an impact on agriculture. But we don't know exactly how that's going to manifest. A lot of people were aware that a risk for a pandemic was there, but we didn't know exactly what it was going to look like until it happened. And it, same thing with the effects to coffee agriculture and supply chains because of climate change. But we can work on it and we can prepare ourselves for all the possibilities. Similar thing on the consumer side, consumer tastes change, culinary trends change, and coffee has to be ready for those changes. And to me, it's the dynamism, the speed at which our system is changing will in increase and we have to be ready to that. I think that's gonna be the biggest challenge going forward is the necessity of us all being able to adapt to changing circumstances. That's an amazing yeah. synthesis change, the dynamic nature that we have to be prepared for, for those unexpected shocks. I, I, I would, I'd love to just yeah. add that I'm an optimist about this. As a species, we've distinguished ourselves by being adaptable to change, you know? And I think when you ask the question, what are, what's the big challenge to coffee? I think a lot of people go to climate change right away because that's a big, scary thing that exists in our consciousness now. But what it calls for is not to be afraid or paralyzed by this change that's happening. It's to figure it out. What's going to take to meet that challenge and how challenges can get us working and making the system better. And to me, that's the opportunity so from when you began 
in the 80s to now, we, we have a much more sophisticated industry now. How would you describe the industry we see today in front of us compared to those early days? In the 80s and 90s, coffee, especially coffee in the United States, was very much inspired by Europe. We had Italian names for the drinks. The espresso machine was very important as the sort of representation of, of what specialty coffee was. Things like French roast and French presses. This was a very European idea, and that's what specialty coffee was in the U.S. It was really about being inspired by European coffee things and applying those to an American context. Um, one thing that's different about that now is now European coffee style is one of the many coffee cuisines that exist. Here I am in Southern California, right? We've got this distinct super specialty coffee shop that's very focused on almost wine kind of terminology, specialist kind of thing. And that's a culture that exists. At the same time, there is this vibrant Latin American style coffee scene here in Southern California and elsewhere in the United States where it's not about cafe lattes and cappuccinos. It's about horchata lattes. Then there's also a whole Vietnamese kind of coffee shop and a Korean style of coffee shop. And so we've got this amazing diversity in specialty coffee that did not exist 20 years ago at all. It was very narrow and now it's so broad and so diverse, it's magical how different it can be. That's a challenge for our industry to deal with because we're an industry that's built on standards, having high standards, knowing what special is. I was talking about cold brew a minute ago, and that's a good example. Cold brew is now a major segment of our industry that really didn't exist 25 years ago. Now coffee drinks being consumed cold is a large and growing part of our industry. How does that fit in to the specialty coffee story? Coffee businesses look different from each other. Coffee drinkers look different from each other. The geographies are different. The culture of coffee in London or New York is very different than Seoul, Tokyo, Jakarta, or the Middle East. And that's exciting. Exciting times ahead for, for our industry. Yeah, absolutely. That diversity, as challenging as it is, it is really, really healthy for us. Because what that means is diversity is always in any system, is also, it also brings with it resilience. I'm seeing, for example, a given coffee producer has a lot of options for their coffee now. And they're different from each other. The different markets that exist value different things. And that's a very strong thing. You've obviously learned a lot in this career. What would you say is the best piece of advice that you've had along your coffee journey that you'd like to share with other coffee people? This is going to sound odd. But the thing that I've learned is don't let coffee be everything. And this is actually something I got from my father. My father had a successful career as a physical therapist, but he also had passions outside of that. He loved surfing. He loved working on historic cars. And I grew up seeing that. And that's what he gave to me about coffee. You can tell that it's very easy for me to get obsessed with coffee. Because <laughs> see that. But I also am constantly reminded that I have to cultivate knowledge outside of coffee too. And the reason that's important is because turns out that that applies to coffee, you know, 
economics, for example, I never would have thought that an understanding of economics would be important um, to my coffee geekery. But it turns out that economics really explains a lot of things about how coffee works. So my external interest in economics or in global history or something like that, or cooking, I love to cook. All of these things are interests that I cultivate that wind up making my coffee experience and knowledge richer. And so with young people often who get very focused on like, I got to know everything about coffee right now. I got to live coffee. I got to breathe coffee. Often the, the advice that I give that I learned from my dad is don't let one thing be everything, you know, expand, just be patient. It'll come and cultivate your outside interests besides coffee because it makes everything richer. Peter, thanks so much for joining us here today on Fifth Wave. Thanks, Jeff. And that's all for this week's Fifth Wave podcast. Please subscribe to Fifth Wave wherever you get your podcasts. And if you've enjoyed this show, please recommend us to a friend or give us a five-star rating. And to stay informed, visit worldcoffeebottle.com to access all the latest global coffee news, including the weekly coffee dose, our newsletter sharing the breaking news stories of the week. This episode was produced in the one and only Serendipity Studios in glorious Camden, North London. It was produced by myself, Jeffrey Young, Hannah Heath, and sound engineering by Chris Bristow. And this week's song, in collaboration with The Coffee Music Project, is Red Light by London-based artist Native. And until next time, stay safe, stay passionate, and stay caffeinated. Nobody can touch me.
have reason to believe you're guilty of rigging bets and money laundering, sir. You have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can be used against you in court. You have the right to talk to a lawyer for advice before we ask you any questions. You have the right to have a lawyer with you during any questions. If you cannot afford a lawyer, one will be able to call you for all the questions you do.